So, this term we've been studying the first part of Jesus' teaching about what it means to live as God intended. We're studying the first part of Jesus' teaching about what it means to live as God intended. It's a blueprint for human flourishing, a way of life that leads to a deeper relationship with God and with others. Jesus' vision for the human life, God's vision, the Bible's vision for human life, human flourishing, is rooted in what Christians call grace. Grace is the belief that we all fall short of God's intention for us. And yet God, because of his unfailing love, comes to restore us and lead us home. And everything Jesus says is rooted in that understanding of the human condition. That humanity, that in a universe that echoes to the glory of God's grace and the glory of his love and uh, proclaims his glory, humanity has chosen to reject that. And as a consequence, we live lives that fall short of what God wants for us. Lives that fall short of loving God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and loving each other as ourselves. And each one of us needs God's love to restore us. But instead of simply doing away with the mistake or doing away with the rebellion, God said, no, I love these people so much that I will come and I will restore them. So Jesus begins his teaching by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they need help, for they receive God's healing. Quite an important theological point that it's not that anybody is excluded from the love of God. God's grace and his love is sufficient to restore and, and redeem every human life. In my uh, uh, college I study at Methodism uh, as a tradition, the teaching of John Wesley, and it's summarised, they summarise uh, what, what Wesley taught in four alls, all need to be saved, everyone falls short of the glory of God, all can be saved, actually God's love is sufficient for everyone, his grace is sufficient for everyone, that's going to be really important when we, uh, when we explore what Jesus teaches, but equally we do need to accept that gift. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's saying is, blessed are those who know that they need God's love and his grace and his forgiveness. They know they need his healing and are willing to receive it. Having set up this big idea of what it means to be saved, Jesus then goes through different areas in which we mess up our relationships with God and with others. And the thing that underlies all of these, if you're somebody who's searching for a common theme that underpins Matthew 5, which is what we've been reading, the first part of Jesus' teaching, it's this. It's an exploration of the different ways we destroy our relationships with God and each other through self-centeredness and self-preservation. That's what links each one of the things Jesus is talking about. He's just looking at the same heart attitude of self-centeredness, of me first, the attitude that puts me first and says that I need to protect myself and then he's looking at how it affects the different areas of human life so he goes through uh, anger and bitterness and scorn and says you guys know that you're not supposed to murder each other but you say everything else is okay it doesn't matter how I treat other people as long as I don't actually kill them he says, but God wants you to live lives of peace and forgiveness He says, you uh, know that you're not allowed to commit adultery. That's a kind of basic minimum of commitment and faith. 
to each other in sexual relationships. He says, but God doesn't intend you to not commit adultery. He intends you not to use each other sexually. So then Jesus says, but you, if you go around in your hearts and in your minds and you, you use each other for your own gratification, you put yourself at the centre of your relationships, that's just as bad as committing adultery. It's not what God intended for you. And he goes through this. He says, uh, you guys, you take the judicial punishment of crime. You, it, God provided a law so that uh, people who do wrong are punished. And people who have been wronged have their, uh, their uh, pain made whole. God made a law for that. And you used it to put yourself at the centre of the universe and to demand what you can from each other. So God said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There'll be no more punishment than the crime deserves. And you used it to say, well, give me everything I can possibly get from each other. So you won't lend to each other unless you know you'll get money back. You won't give to each other unless you know that they will do something for you. As soon as someone hurts you, you want to take revenge. Because you're putting yourself at the centre of life and putting them on the outside. In response, Jesus teaches that God never intended us to be self-centred and self-protected. That was never supposed to be the way human beings were. It's, if you like, it's summed up in the, in the great cry of Cain. Uh, to pick a story from the Old Testament, Cain and Abel is a kind of paradigm and an archetype. The, 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 the supreme example of how human relationships break down. That's what the story is there for. Two brothers, literally brothers... And they're there to show how it is that we break our relationships with each other. And Cain says to God at one point, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, my life is not focused around him. My life is focused around me. And when Jesus comes and he teaches, he wants to say, no, your lives are not supposed to be focused around me. They're supposed to be focused around each other. That's what God intended. He teaches that God never meant us to be self-centred and self-protecting, but to be other-centred and other-serving. Designed to love God with all our being and love our neighbours as ourselves. Everything he teaches from verse 21 in Matthew 5 onwards is building up to this. So when you read it uh, in future and you think, what on earth is he on about? Why, what links all these things? That's what he's on about. That's what he's teaching. If you like, instead of making ourselves as big and as happy as as we can, taking up as much space for ourselves as we can, God intends us to make each other as big and happy as we can. He says, I will flourish when I don't seek my own good but seek yours. And you will flourish when you don't seek your own good but seek mine. If we do that, we become like Jesus. This is what Jesus did. It's how Jesus lived. He gave himself for other people. We're rewarded by God. We're going to come on to that. But paradoxically, we also become far happier and contented than we can ever be by being selfish. But partly, it's just a maths thing. If I'm seeking my own good, as, a, as, as one man seeking my own good, and you're all seeking your own good, how many people are seeking your good? One. If you're all seeking my good, There's a whole room full of people who are seeking my good. Which means there are more people seeking my good than there were before. Similarly, and this is what contemporary um, social science finds, people who are generous, who are gracious, who who give themselves for their co-workers and for 
other people do better in almost every area of life and are happier. Right, so if you're, this is a quick, quick tip, this isn't what I'm preaching about today, but if you're at work and you want to get promoted to work more quickly, earn more money and be more satisfied in your work, seek the good of your co-workers. The one thing you can do that will improve your satisfaction at work, your financial reward and your uh, promotion prospects is to seek the good of other people in your company. That's not me making that up. That's not some pie-in-the-sky priest, you know, preaching the world as it should be. That is, business research in America has found that that is empirically true. There is a massive correlation between the good, the people, the employees who seek the good of other people in their company and progress and happiness at work. Huge. It's better to give, Jesus says, than to receive. So we might reply to this and say, I I understand, I've gone with you the whole way, Jesus. I'm with you right up until the end. I'm there with you. Absolutely. I need to love my neighbour as myself. Particularly if you're a particularly religious person. You're sitting there thinking, I I want to love my neighbour as myself. Of course I do. But I need to know, who does this really apply to? Who does it really mean? Granted, I should love my neighbours, whoever that might be, but what does that actually mean? And this is the question Jesus addresses today. What does it actually mean to say love your neighbours as yourself? Is there a group of people who's excluded from that? So we're going to read uh, from the Bible now. We're going to read several bits of the Bible. Uh, because of my lack of organisation, I'm going to read them all. But that's, uh, Does anybody fancy doing a reading? I'm going to give you it open. Yes, thank you, Liz. Always up for a challenge. All right. You're going to read from Isaiah 1 to 42. No. You're not. Uh, <laughs> never volunteer before you know what you're being asked to do. No, don't worry, you're not. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to read several bits of the Bible. I'm going to get you all to turn to Matthew 5. So if you've got a paper Bible, turn to Matthew 5. It's on page 970. Keep your finger there. I'm going to read from different bits of the Bible, and Liz is going to help me. Uh, but you don't need to turn to them all. I'm going to read something from Matthew. This is what we're actually looking at. This is what Jesus taught. This is, if you like, a summary of Jesus' teaching. Uh, he went around for three years teaching everywhere he went, and this is the summary of what he taught. And uh, I'm going to read a bit from the Old Testament, so the bits that came before Jesus, to show the context the background to what Jesus is teaching, and I'm going to show a little bit from. I'm going to read a bit from after Jesus to show how this was applied in his life and in the teaching of his followers. So, first of all, I'm going to read Matthew five. Liz, why don't you come up and join me, and then we'll take it in turns. Yeah. Liz likes to sing easy listening tunes, so if she breaks into Tony Bennett. Very much a lounge singer. Um, I'm going to need to read from the iPad so that it's definitely the same version that's on the screen, okay? So first of all, Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48. This is Jesus teaching. He says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, 
What more are you doing than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, keep your fingers there, don't, uh, don't shut your Bibles. Um, but we're going to read to you from the Old Testament. So this is the writings, the Jewish writings that came from about 2000 BC through uh, to, or 1400 BC through to uh, Jesus' time. Okay, so this is the first. Liz is going to read us from Leviticus 19 verse 18. This is part of the law that governed Israel. Okay, Leviticus 19 verse 18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Yeah. Okay, then uh, we're going to read a sample from the Psalms. This is poetry talking about how God cares for all people. Okay. Psalm 145, I should say. Psalm 145, verse 8 to 16. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper Uh, time. time, (laughs) You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Yes, it does. Okay. Great work, Liz. Thank you. So you might say, well, what does it look like? Uh, what does it look like when Jesus says, love your enemies? This is what it looked like in Jesus' own life. So this is Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 34. This is just one example. Very famous one. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, that's Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, actually in Greek, that word is, uh, went on saying, it's a continuous thing. So if you imagine all the way through this process, he's praying this prayer. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Then finally, I'm going to read from Romans. This is St. Paul, writing to a church, an early church, full of people who were Roman and Jewish. And uh, encouraging them to live out what Jesus taught. So this is Romans 12, verse 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap up burning coals on his head. That's ash. Burning coals make ash. It's a sign of repentance and humility. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. I always try and give a summary of what we're learning. And uh, here is today's summary. Christians should seek the good of everyone, whoever they are and whatever they've done, because that is what God does. In some ways, that's the whole of the law and the prophets. Christians should seek the good of everyone, whoever they are and whatever they've done, because that is what God does. Christians should seek the good of everyone, whoever they are and whatever they've done, because that is what God does. Who then is my neighbour? Put this back up. Jesus comes to the peak of his uh, moral teaching in this chapter, his application of this idea that God created us to live other-centred lives, lives of love for God and for others. And he, uh, he answers this question, which is, who does this apply to? You see, the, the law of Moses never said that you should love your uh, neighbour and hate your enemy. That's nowhere in the Bible. You can look and you won't find it. And... Uh, he's confronting a, a wrong piece of teaching that had come about in his day. But it's a really interesting piece of teaching because it reveals something of the human heart. The law actually just says the Jews should love their neighbours as themselves. That's the bit that Liz read to us. That's what the law says. It says, love your neighbours as yourself. As with everything else, however, this starts to be narrowed by human self-centeredness and self-protectedness. We should we argue, love everyone except them. I mean, that's a pretty standard pattern of argument. Uh, Every time we carve out a principle or uh, an idea for ourselves, the first thing we do is work out what the exceptions are. Don't run in the corridors at school and you think, well, but what about if there's a fire, miss? What about if I'm being chased? I guarantee you that's what the children are thinking. 100%. You can't have TV before school. Ah, but what about? What about? What about? You must love your neighbour. Ah, but what about? But what about? What aboutery, it's called. So some teachers clarified this. They they were asked, what about uh, these people? They clarified this. They said we should love our neighbours, but obviously we should hate hate our enemies. After all, they're our enemies. Now that rule sounds incredibly profound, but it is in fact both ridiculous and unnecessary. Who on earth needs to be told to love their friends and hate their enemies? By definition, that is what people tend to do. The idea that God would waste his time sending Moses and Jesus to teach people to love their friends and hate their enemies is balmy. Because you don't need to be told to do that. We don't need to be told that. Everybody naturally loves their friends and hates their enemies. It's one of the few things that unites people from wildly different points of view. If you were to take an example from recent history, the one thing that would unite the Black Panther Party and the Ku Klux Klan is that they both love their friends and really hate their enemies. The one thing that unites both Nazis and communists, not the one thing, but one of the things is that they love their friends and they hate their enemies. 
The one thing that unites the jets and the sharks in West Side Story is they love their friends and they hate their enemies. You, you don't need to teach people to do this. They just do it. We just do it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is, is, is ridiculing this teaching. He says, you've heard the, all these teachers are going around saying, oh, they sort of stroke their beards. Oh, Rabbi, teach me. Teacher, teach me what it is that God means. He says, oh. It's very profound. God means that you know those people you love already. Love them. And you know those people you hate already. Hate them. And Jesus is, Jesus is like, what? Am I the only person who could see how utterly ridiculous that is? Even the tax collectors, like the closest uh, comparison we have with tax collectors in recent European history is Vichy France, right? The government in France that cooperated with the Nazis. They're the closest example we have in recent European history to tax collectors as they were in Jesus' day. If you imagine how hated the Vichy government was by the French resistance in World War II, how utterly loathsome they were to the people who were fighting for a free France, you get some idea of how these people felt about tax collectors. And Jesus is like, really? Your moral standard, your vision for life, is exactly what the Vichy already do. What the tax collectors already do. Now I'm not standing here in order to ridicule them and judge them and excuse us. We all do this. Our society loves to do this. It's one of the things that characterises it, that makes it some... There is something that has changed in the last 15 to 20 years about the way the West is that is particularly reflecting this verse, these verses. It starts with the trumpeting of love. We love love. We can't stop singing about it, making movies about it, having parades about it, wearing t-shirts about it. I I could go on and on and on and on and on. Slogans. Bumper stickers. We can't get enough of the idea of love. We love to love one another. We post on Facebook about it. Until someone steps out of line. We love everyone until someone steps out of line and says, well, I'm not actually with you on this issue, or I'm not with you on that comment. Then suddenly, I've never seen a society, I study a lot of societies, because I study history, theological history, so I do actually study quite a long period of time, hundreds of years. I've never come across a society that withdraws love so quickly from people, once they put themselves in the out-group. It is remarkable how fast we do it. The wrath we unleash on people when they move from our camp to someone else's is just unparalleled. It's without limits. It's also, I'm not the first person to to notice this, it's almost without redemption as well. The idea that someone who has fallen from public grace can be redeemed, be forgiven and restored... It's one that our society has almost completely forgotten. And I'm not now having a go at any particular tribe. I think this is a cultural thing across the spectrum. You see it in progressive politics and in conservative politics. It's not a left or right issue. As soon as someone deviates from the line, as soon as they put themselves not in our camp, 
we rain down fury on them. It's, a, it's true amongst both secular and religious people. I think often this has probably been associated with religious people, and we have to own that, that actually that's true. You know, particularly conservative, well, actually conservative and progressive religious people, very quick to be bitter and angry with each other. But it's true in the secular world. We live in an age that has no time at all for loving its enemies. That's the culture we swim in. If we're not careful, that will be what we become unconsciously. Because we take our values from the society around us, the culture around us. Just like the health of a fish is determined by the pollution in the water it swims. The moral health of people is determined by the culture they live in, in large part. If we're not really careful, this will come to characterise us. Jesus says, I don't want you to be like the tax collectors. God's vision for humanity was not this one that you love your friends and you hate your enemies and are determined to destroy them at all costs. Jesus says, God wanted you to be like him. He wanted you to be, he made you in his image. That's what you're designed to be. To be children of your Father in heaven. I was around at um, Brett and Angela's house the other day. I was trying to see if they were still in the area. Brett and Angela's house. And uh, uh, the other day for a meeting, a wonderful meeting, great couple. I was brought up short on my way out by the, uh, one of their wedding pictures. And as you will expect, because they are such an attractive couple, it was a very nice picture. What made me shocked was how much, however, their kids look like them. Well, I'm not trying to embarrass you. Do you have beautiful children? It was like someone had done that ageing app on the children and said, you two are going to get married to each other in some sort of weird ceremony in 20 years' time. You start to realise how much they look like their father and mother. Jesus says, you should look like your father. God made you to look like him. That's one of the things it means to be made in his image, is that you look like your father. There's a family resemblance. What did he mean by that? God shows kindness and grace to everyone, everywhere, without exception, irrespective of how they've treated him. Now, I'm going to need to explain what I mean by that, but Jesus gives an example. He sends the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, on the pious and the impious, on Iran and America, on Tories and the Labour Party. The sun shines, the rain comes, God's grace, his provision for people is given not to those who love him and withdrawn from those who hate him, but to all people. He gives air, sustains life, gives rain, provokes thought, enables love, inspires laughter and beauty indiscriminately. As the psalmist says, he has compassion on all he has made. Jesus says, be like your father. We're created and called to be the same. We should seek the good. That's what love means, by the way. That's in the Bible when you read the word love. 
it can be summarized as being completely committed to seeking the good of another person. It often brings with it feelings of, oh, it's Rosalia, oh, she's so lovely, oh, how will I live without her? Brings those feelings very often. But it's not really about that, it's actually about decision to commit yourself to the other's good. We should seek the good of everyone, whoever they are, whatever they believe, even if they are our enemies. However badly they have treated us. For Jesus, this wasn't theory. When they crucified him, the Son of God, I mean the unmitigated gall of the people, he must have been thinking... If I just snap my fingers, I don't know if any of you seen, uh, anyone seen Avengers Infinity War? No? No, no I'm not going to spoil the end for you. I was going to give an illustration. Yeah, Yanni. Okay. Must have just been thinking, I'm going to click my fingers. And you'd all be dust. And yet he let them crucify him. And while they were doing it, he was praying, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Love your enemies. It wasn't theory for St. Paul. In St. Paul's time, his ministry between mid-30s and the mid to late 60s and 70s, Christians were chased out of town, stoned in the streets. He himself had people stoned before he became a Christian. Loving your enemies isn't theory for these people. They're going to die. Paul was executed in Rome. When he says don't take revenge, what he's saying is I'm about to be killed by these people and I don't want you to avenge my death. I want you to love them. That doesn't mean treating everyone the same. We have particular obligations to our families, to other uh, Christians, for, to those God has given us responsibility for. Right? God puts us in families because he expects us to provide for one another. He puts, groups us into nations so that we can provide for one another. He, he uh, puts us in the family of the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ, and says, you guys provide for one another first. They're the people I've given you responsibility for. Don't hear what I'm saying now, I'm sure none of you would, but I'm just saying this just in case. Don't hear what I'm saying now and then not feed your family because you are sending all your money to other, feed other people's families. Right? God's given you responsibility for these people. Moreover, and this is a what about you, I'm going to anticipate the objection. Love looks different and demands different things depending on who we're dealing with. Let me put it this way, if someone comes to you who is gasping for a glass of water and is desperately thirsty and you says, please would you give me what I ask for, you should give them a glass of water. If someone comes and asks for uh, a hit of drugs, you should not do that. Love requires we act differently depending on who we're dealing with. There will be times when we have to stand up to people, not because we hate them, but because we love them. Because the course of action they're embarking on is bad for them and bad for other people. And actually the loving thing to do is not to enable them, but to withstand them. Right, we understand this with children, right? It's most clearly seen with children, but it's also true with adults. There are times when, pe when children are determined to do something and you know it's a bad idea. Daddy, please let me do the cooking. I know how to treat the hob. 
I'm sorry, sweetheart, step away from the hob, and if you won't step away from the hob, I will remove you from the room, because you are about to stick your hair in it. The same street to with adults, right? I'm embarking on a course of action I know is wrong. I'm going to set up a business loan sharking. I've got everything I need. I've got five grand from a gangster and I've got a baseball bat. Will you help me? Well, no. No, I won't help you. No, I won't help you. In fact, I'm going to stop you and if you won't stop, I'm going to tell the police. There are times when love requires that we withstand people. But we should always be motivated by the good of the other person and the good of the people involved and not by wanting to destroy them and by hating them. See, that's the difference in what Jesus is saying. He's not saying give everyone what they want all the time. He's not saying uh, treat people indiscriminately. What he's saying is always seek their good. Always seek their good. Even if they hate you, seek their good. We don't succumb to bitterness or revenge. Rather, we seek the good of others, their redemption, even when we have to oppose them. So Jesus isn't saying you won't have enemies. If you go through life as a Christian, you will have enemies. I'm sorry to say, it's just part of being a human being. Living in a fallen and broken world. But even when people are our enemies, we should love them. Interesting that if we do this, there is a reward for us. There is a reward for us. Jesus says, uh, you can tell this, because he says, if you uh, love those who love you, verse 46, if you're following along in a paper Bible, what reward will you get? The implication's clear. Loving enemies brings a reward from God. I'm saying this because some of you might well be struggling to love an enemy at the moment and thinking, all I ever get is grief. I love them and they just carry on being mean as anything to me. I I wish I could tell you that wasn't true, but when Jesus prayed for the guards, they didn't stop nailing him to the cross. Sorry that's a bit bleak. But it's life. I want to be honest with you, that's life. Very often when we love others... They don't love us back. But God says, I want you to know that I'm going to reward you. If you're going through that at the moment, if you're struggling to love someone who is being returning you with evil for good, keep on going because God sees and he will reward you. Go back all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. God will give us, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven. All of heaven's resources become yours. It happens as God enables us to experience more and more of himself. And so renews and restores and gives life to our souls. When we choose the path of love, even to the point of our own hurt, God gives us life. As we lose our life for the sake of Christ and the world he loves, we find it. We come closer to the one thing that lasts forever and is the fulfilment of everything for which we were created. More than this, however, if you resolve to treat people with love and seek their good, whatever happens, you will find it transforms the world around you. It may not be immediately. In the immediate 
moment Jesus died. Within five years, there were thousands who were following him. Within 300 years, the whole Roman Empire was Christian. Within 2,000 years, following the failure of love, apparent failure of love, within 2,000 years, there were 2.3 billion people following Christ. This will transform people's lives. When we follow the way of Christ, it will cost us, but we gain something that far outweighs anything we might lose. How then should we change how we live? First of all, pray. We'll be intensely practical now. Pray. Jesus doesn't just say to love our enemies. He says to pray for them. Why? It isn't a kind of sop. You know, the, there's a thing that went around the media a, few, uh, a couple of years ago about whether people should stop saying we're sending our thoughts and prayers after disasters and instead send some actual help. Jesus isn't saying pray for them instead of doing something good for them. But actually, prayer is the start of doing something good for them. The best way to change one's attitude towards someone who is being horrible is to pray for them. If you find it really difficult to get past your distaste for this person and their horribleness to you, there is nothing you can do that will so transform your life and your heart towards them as praying for their good. It is as if when we come to God in prayer, he draws the poison of bitterness from our hearts and puts it on the cross. That is in fact exactly what he's doing. It's also the first and best way of seeking their good. As we pray, God changes our minds and hearts towards them and can also change their attitude as well. You see, God does answer prayer, even for jerks. Stuff happens when we pray. Secondly, to pray for them. Secondly, watch your hearts and words, especially with those we don't like or agree with. There is a place for being implacably opposed to something, especially if it's destructive of people or their relationship with God. But we can quickly distort that. As soon as you find yourself in that position of being opposed to someone, watch your heart. Watch what you say. We quickly become vicious and destructive in what we do or say. And we've got to resist that. I'm aware that that seems impossible. It only happens through God's presence with us. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. So again, pray. Bring your heart to God and ask Him to fill you with love. Finally, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus in the way I've been talking about, you may have come along to church this morning because you thought, I'm going to go and hear the guy who talks for so long. And because I like the tunes. But I'm not sure about Jesus. And I'm not, I haven't given him my life. I'm not actually a follower of Jesus. I want you to know that even when you were far away from God, even when we were all enemies in what we do and say, God loved us. He loved you so much that Jesus died for you to give you a way back to God when you were his enemy. The good of that and the knowledge of God's love can be yours today if you'll accept it. Christians should seek the good of everyone. Whoever they are and whatever they have done. Because that is what God does.